Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Welcome back to Israel Unplugged. This is Josh Wander from Yerushalayim, Ira Kodesh. I'm here with my co-host, Rabbi Moshe Lichtman of Beit Shemesh. Yes, hello, hello. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Israel Unplugged is where you get the unadulterated facts of where we're holding in the redemptive process, focusing primarily on the ingathering of the exiles. This is an entirely live show, so we encourage you to call in. If you are unfortunate enough to be stuck in the United States, then you should call in 301-768-4841. That's 301-768-4841. We'd love to hear from you. And if you're fortunate enough to be here in Eretz Yisrael, then you should call the number 02-650-0151. That's 02-650-0151. Again, Israel Unplugged is connected to a organization, uh, besides being hosted by Israel News Talk Radio, it is connected to an organization called Bring Them Home. Bring Them Home is where we try to inform and educate Jews around the world of the importance of living in Eretz Israel today. You can find our website at itstimetoleave.com. It's timetoleave.com. Over there you'll find uh, a connection to this show as well as other shows that we have, uh, podcasts. We have video, a video series which you can find on YouTube through that uh, link, and it has uh, hundreds of informative uh, uh, interviews with prominent rabbis and rebbitzins speaking about the importance of living in Eretz Israel today, and, uh, and we encourage you to go there, subscribe, and to press on notifications. Likewise, we would like to uh, encourage you to go to our co- my, my co-host's uh, website, which is toratzion.com, T-O-R-A-T-Z-I-O-N.com, and over there you will find a selection of all of Rabbi Lichtman's books that he has written, translated, and the projects that he is involved with. And we encourage you to go there and uh, support him by purchasing his books and, uh, and helping him out. Again, we're looking forward, forward to a very, very informative show ahead of us. We have an exciting guest, and uh, we'd like you to stick with us because we will be right back in just a moment. did a nice Jewish girl from Delaware end up living in Israel? Shalom! I'm Natalie Sapinski. Join me on my show, Returning Home. Meet different people who have moved to Israel. Hear their personal stories, their highs, their lows, and everything in between. Each week, we talk to experts on immigration and the process of moving to Israel. Listen to Returning Home every Thursday, only on Israel News Talk Radio. Welcome back to Israel Unplugged. This is Josh Wander. And as promised, we have a very special guest in the studio today. This is Rav Yehuda HaKohen. 
He is a teacher at Machal Meir and a leader in the vision movement where he works to empower young Jews with the tools to be able to identify and achieve the next goals of Jewish history. You can check out his work at visionmag.org and at visionmovement.org. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be with you. So uh, would you like to start, Rabbi Lithman? Yeah, okay. So, so um, you know, this, uh, this interview uh, started because last night I watched your most recent video, I understand, um, against the Naturi Karta or, or explaining the Naturi Karta. Uh, for those of you who don't know, though, that's a very extreme right-wing, uh, ultra-Orthodox um, movement that uh, that totally rejects the state of Israel, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know what, I'm not so interested. Uh, that doesn't bother I, me can so I, much. Can I, can I interrupt? Please, you just, please. You, you, just, uh, you just called them ultra-Orthodox. Why did you do that? <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm serious. I, that's you, are, really... you are correct. They, because they uh, apparently, they, they appear to be ultra-Orthodox Jews. They but, dress uh, the role. They dress the role, correct, but um, yeah. Many of the things that they do are very unorthodox. Many of the things, correct, are very unorthodox. Uh, they, of course, would argue with that. But anyway, that that wasn't the part of the video that I that I so liked. I liked your whole take on um, on basically Jewish history and the Galut, the exile, what it did for us. So maybe you want to, if you could just summarize for us, you know, the main ideas that you uh, put forth in that video. I think, for me at least, uh, the video was an attempt to really understand Natori Karta more than to attack them. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think there is uh, an element of of uh, what I guess we can call a Galut mentality or what I might call colonization that uh, manifests itself in their behavior and in their positions. Um, Although I think, to their credit, something I heard, uh, yeah, it's not, I mean, I've heard before, but also once the video was out, somebody uh, reminded me that a lot of this, from their perspective, is really just trying to fight what I guess we can call westernization uh, of Eretz Israel, and, and a lot of things that they might have seen the Zionist movement bringing to the country that, you know, wasn't really an example of how the Jewish people should behave or organize ourselves in our land. And I think that's a valid criticism. I think it's true that there are features of Zionism or features of the state of Israel that are not necessarily in sync with our people's identity, with our people's ancient worldview, with our people's historic mission. And those things do need to be addressed. I just don't think Natori Karta's going uh, about addressing them or combating them the right way. Hello? Yes. Yes, keep going. Oh, okay, you can hear me? Yeah, we can hear you, we can hear you. Okay, uh, but, but, you know, the kids are like, uh, briefly uh, stating it, I, I'd say that the people of Israel uh, have a historic mission, and that is to bring humanity to the awareness uh, of ourselves as um, really part of one divine source, and to understand that there's an author to this story, and I think uh, humanity through the story of the Jewish people, and just, you know, with all of its downs and ups and trials and tribulations and overcomings and comebacks, etc., um, 
you know, it just becomes obvious that there's an author to this story and that there's a purpose to the story. You know, by all, you know, just according to the laws of nature, we, we really should have disappeared centuries ago. The fact that we're still here, the fact that we've managed to maintain our identity for, for so many centuries in exile uh, and actually succeeded in coming back to the land we were displaced from and reviving our ancient language and, uh, you know, winning what I would call miraculous wars against seemingly, you know, impossible odds. You know, I think all of those things are really miraculous and indications that uh, there's something supernatural at play. There, there's something unnatural taking place. There's something beyond nature happening. And, uh, and, and I think that we have to also understand that the state of Israel is a work in progress, that there are a lot of things we can critique uh, from multiple directions about the state of Israel and the way it, you know, its policies, the way it organizes the, the, the alliances it makes, etc. And, uh, but it's, you know, we, we need to look at the development the same way we'd look at the development of a human. You know, when a baby's born, they're born imperfect. They're, you know, they're, they're not, they don't have great table manners. They soil themselves. <laughs> um, they can't talk. Uh, and, but there are stages. There's a childhood stage, the adolescent stage, teenage stage, you know, adulthood, and even adulthood has several stages, as you know, we all know. Uh, and uh, and I think we need to not only be patient uh, and understanding with how the state is developing, but also really, and this is maybe more my concern, figure out what we can do to facilitate its proper development, guard against unnecessary uh, setbacks, and to really do everything we can to try and advance the, the Geula process, the redemption process, forward. Okay, so, so my question is, how can we get the Haredi world, the, the real ultra-Orthodox world, right, uh, to, to go along with this? Forget about the Neturi Karta. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I allow myself to say this because my Rebbe, Moreno Harav, Herschel Schechter, one of the great great rabbis of our generation, you know, called them off their rocker. So they're like a fringe uh, group, and let's forget about them. But how can we get this message out to normal Haredi Jews and get them to come on board and help us make the state of Israel what it really can be? Um. Well, first of all, uh, I think that the what we call like mainstream Haredi Israelis are slowly coming closer and closer to integration into the state. Uh, I mean, it, it also depends on our expectations. I I'm coming from the Beit Midrash of Rav Kook. I'm coming from the world of Rav Kook. Uh, I don't expect the Haredim to adopt the Torah of Rav Kook. I expect them to maintain the Torah that, and in many ways, I would argue it's a, a very different type of Torah, but I expect them to maintain the Torah that they already have. Uh, and I think that as they integrate into society, the, the way that Torah expresses itself uh, will maybe broaden. Um, I, I think that, in fact, I would argue that Haredi Torah uh, when mixed with nationalism, whether that nationalism be deep or shallow, I think Haredi Torah, when mixed with nationalism, 
uh, produces Kahanism. Uh, and I think that's really where Israel's Haredi population is headed right now. Mm-hmm. You mean uh, ex- extreme, extreme views on 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 different things? And just for those uh, listeners who don't know what Kahanism is, um, we won't get we won't get into that whole debate. But um, okay, I, I hear what you're saying, and uh, I, definitely. And I, don't I mean, mean it in terms of a political platform. Just to be clear, I, I mean it less in terms of um, subscribing to a set of political ideas, and just more sociocultural. I think what um, you know, for better or worse, what Rav Meir Gahana had done was taken the Haredi approach to Torah and applied it to national issues, which is, I think, radically different from what Rav Cook did. And I think that, um, and I think that's as the Haredi community becomes more integrated in Israeli society, uh, send more of their young men to the army, uh, are more involved in the workforce and in participate in the economy. Uh, already, I would argue that if Israeli politics were a sport, the Haredi members of Knesset are the best athletes, both the Shas party and the Ashkenazi Haredim. I, I would say they're some of the most formidable and cunning politicians we have. And I think mm-hmm. that um, as we see them entering society, they're going to kind of morph on their own into something else. I, I think we're not far away from a moment where they start demanding things like the defense ministry and the foreign ministry or the finance ministry, or maybe even aspiring to, to win an election and, and uh, you know, choose their own prime minister prime minister uh, they're, they're one that, of the that's very interesting you that you're saying that because what the 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 Haredi parties have traditionally shied away even though they're not anti-zionist and therefore they're they're willing to join a government they have traditionally stayed away from the key roles of uh, policymakers in the government because they feel that they are uh, that it's still a government which is secular and they shouldn't be the ones that are creating policy for the government. Mm-hmm. Right, so, so that might be a good rationalization to stay away when they anyway don't have the power to take control. But the Haredi population, is the Haredi community is probably the fastest growing population between the river and the sea. And I think that once they see themselves in a position to to take power or to come close to power, I think they're going to seize it. It depends who. You know, again, we're speaking about a community that has several different groups with several different attitudes, and some of those attitudes towards the state aren't exactly what they were even 20 years ago. Meaning, I think that a lot of the Haredi attitude towards the state of Israel uh, evolves. Um, and uh, just sometimes, just simply because history has proven it to be more correct than they had assumed 100 years ago. You know, there are. I, I've heard many. Uh, okay, we're going to have to go to a break now. So okay. uh, uh, stay with us and we will continue after the break. everybody. Making a difference often takes just one moment and one person at a time. 
I'm Orly Benny Davis, your show host on Israel News Talk Radios from Jerusalem with love. You'll be hearing people talking about politics, religion, social issues, and making a better tomorrow. Join me, Orly Benny Davis, for God and Country. From Jerusalem with love. Wednesdays on Israel News Talk Radio. Okay, welcome back to Israel Unplugged. We're here with Rav Yehuda HaKohen. And um, I think we're going to move the conversation over. First of all, I want to know who you are. Who exactly is Rav Yehuda HaKohen? And how did he become Rav Yehuda HaKohen? Uh, well, I, uh, I teach in Mechon Meir, um, and I run this movement, the vision movement uh, that uh, Josh mentioned earlier. Uh, and I live on a mountain just a little bit north of Ramallah. <clears throat> in fact, it's the, you know, we have uh, Hanukkah coming up. I actually live on the mountain that was the uh, partisan camp of the Maccabim during the first few years of the revolt. In fact, uh, Matityahu, Hashmonai, uh, died on this mountain. So, well, um, What's it called? Uh, what's the name of your yeshuv? It's called uh, it's called the Artis in Arabic uh, or Piskat Yaakov. It's also believed to be the place where Yaakov Avinu had his dream with the ladder connecting, you know, heaven and earth. Uh, but the mm-hmm. but the wow. Maccabean connection is much easier to prove. I happen to believe that Yaakov did have his dream on this mountain, and I could point you to the exact rock that I believe was. In fact, we once brought a geologist up here who confirmed that it's what's called a conglomerate. It used to be several rocks that at some point in history became a single rock, and it's kind of in the shape of a bed. So, uh, that, you know, I, cool. I would tell you that Yaakov had his dream here. Um, Yeravam ben Nevat built a golden calf on this mountain. Uh, but what I can tell you for sure um, that's much easier to prove historically uh, is that the Maccabim had their partisan camp here. We still have the guard towers. We have the wine presses, the uh, the uh, olive presses, the caves where they planned their battles, and you know where they trained for battle. Um, okay, okay, and, uh, but from from your accent, your in your perfect English accent, it's clear that you didn't. You were not born there. Where where no, were you no. born, and and how did you get there? So I, I was born and raised in New York City. Uh, my parents had moved uh, had moved to the United States from different countries before I was born. Uh, I was the first in my family to be born in the U.S. Uh, I grew up in a neighborhood, uh, this is pre-Giuliani, New York. There was a neighborhood that used to be known as Yorkville. Uh, It's kind of just been gentrified into, you know, part of the Upper East Side now, but it used to be a distinct neighborhood that was a lot more uh, more of an immigrant neighborhood. Uh, At the time, a lot of the kids I grew up with were uh, Albanians who had just arrived in the U.S. or Irish kids who had either been there a generation or two or who themselves had just come from Ireland. Uh, and, uh, you know, I grew up with, I guess, uh, what you can call a rough crowd, uh, had lots of adventures, <laughs> learned a lot of important lessons as a teenager, uh, definitely developed my emuna, and, uh, and, but I was always very ethnically Jewish. You know, I, I had a very strong Jewish identity, and having a Jewish identity in that world was was complicated. You know, uh, to this day, I'm still discovering that some of the kids I grew up with were Jews, because it was something people were so closeted about. Because in that world, uh, it was considered a vulnerability. Like to be to to be known as a Jew 
would make others assume you're soft or vulnerable or an easy target or, you know, less deserving of fear or respect. And, and respect is very important mm -hmm. in that world. So I was actually one of the rare Jews in those circles who was very out about the fact that I was a Jew and very in people's faces about it. And, um, and eventually, um, when I discovered the Internet at the age of 19 or, 19 or so, I discovered the Jewish Defense League. And that I didn't really understand what it was. Was it a Jewish gang? Was it like a Jewish Black Panther Party? I wasn't so clear, but I contacted them anyway, and I joined, and that really changed my life. That really altered the trajectory of, of the rest of my life. Um, after 9-11, about a month after 9-11, I moved to Israel to join the army. This is during the Second Intifada. Uh, I was involved in creating a, a few new Jewish communities on different mountaintops. I began learning in Mechon Meir. And at Mechon Meir, which is a yeshiva, um, which is really in, in the, on the path of Rav Kook, uh, you know, teaches the teachings uh, run by the students of Rav Kook, Rav Tiyudah Kohen Kook, uh, I became very connected to that approach to Torah and um, eventually, you know, got involved in all sorts of things. I'm, I'm a teacher there now. I also run the vision movement. I'm uh, involved in reconciliation work with Palestinians. Um, but again, not as a retreat for Jewish liberation, but as an advancement of Jewish liberation, it's trying to figure out the ideal role of a non-Jew in a Jewish society, um, certainly trying to circumvent attempts by the international community to divide our country, to, to cut our country into two separate states, and uh, finding a way for us to be able to live here together uh, appropriately, you know, really properly, uh, you know, in a way that that feels right to both of us. Mm -hmm. Josh? Amazing. I, I, I would like to go into, and, and, and we may have to, uh, I don't know if we're going to be able to finish this, but you have a very unique perspective when it comes to the story of Joseph and his brothers. This is this week's uh, Torah portion that we are introduced to this. And uh, you really are able, you have this way, which I haven't wrapped my head around uh, everything you have to say, but... Um, you have a way of assigning the current political spectrum to the to Joseph and his brothers. Can you just give us some background about uh, about that story and what you think uh, it all means? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, a lot of these ideas come from Manitou, Rav Yudash uh, Genazi Zetzal, who was one of the you know giants of Torah of the previous generation, and uh, he sees the tribes of Israel, the sons of Israel, these tribal forces, is not only actual biological tribes, but kind of forces within Israel's identity, or we can say maybe in the collective Hebrew soul, what we might call in Kabbalistic terms, Knesset Israel, this like giant spiritual organism that shines into this world through the Jewish people. And, um, you know, the tribes all represent different uh, aspects, not necessarily positive or negative per se. I think all of them might have positive and ne negative expressions. And I find it actually very unhelpful um, to try to impose Western political framings on Israeli society. I don't think that fits. I think there are certain political parties in Israel or political movements or groups in Israel that might resemble, you know, parties or movements in Western countries but a lot of the political groups, including the Haredim that we spoke about before, don't really 
have a uh, you know a parallel in Western civilization. I think, like for example, sometimes I hear people trying to compare Haredi Israelis to you know the Christian right in the United States. I just think it's a very poor and very sloppy and lazy comparison. So I think what's better is to really develop our own understanding of our own political map. And, uh, and I think we can do that through Mani Tu's approach to the tribes of Israel. And Yosef, for example, is one of the leadership tribes of Israel, like Yudah. But the difference between them is that Yosef is, is primarily concerned with the material well-being of the Jewish people, our economy, our security, things of that nature, uh, and also uh, tends to emphasize what we share in common with the dominant civilization of any given generation and wants a connection to that civilization. So in Yosef Tzadik's time, Yosef Ben Yaakov, that was Egypt. Yosef was very drawn to Egypt in many ways. Um, in the time of Hanukkah, we can say it was Greece, and we had a lot of Jews who were of the Yosef persuasion um, going a little overboard in their desire to connect themselves to, to Greek culture and, and Greek civilization. And in the Kingdom of Israel, you, you see this very clear with the um, Kingdom of Israel and the Kingdom of Judah uh, after the split, after the death of Shlomo, Solomon. Uh, you see the kingdom split, and Judah, Shimon, Levi, and Benjamin are the kingdom of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, and the rest of the tribes of the Kingdom of Israel, for the most part, led by Yosef, uh, specifically Ephraim. And at that time, you can see that Yosef, or Malchut Israel, the Kingdom of Israel, was the stronger kingdom, the more important kingdom on the world stage. It was diplomatically, economically, uh, militarily stronger, geographically larger. The trade routes ran through its territory. It was on the shore, very connected to the rest of humanity, and very influenced by the cultures and values of the rest of humanity. Whereas Yehuda, which focuses more on what's unique and special about us, the Beit HaMikdash, the Temple, Jerusalem, the Davidic dynasty, that, you know, was kind of a landlocked desert kingdom that didn't have much influence on the world stage at that time. Uh, but today, thousands of years later, we consider the kingdom of Yehuda to be more important uh, because it's the one that, A, we descend from, that's why we're called Jews, and also, um, and also it had the Davidic dynasty in Jerusalem and the Temple, as I said, so it's more relevant to, to our culture. Uh, but throughout history, you know, these are two very powerful forces within our people. And the way the, the uh, Gaon of Vilna, um, his teachings on Mashiach ben Yosef were recorded by one of his students, actually the ancestor of our former president, Ruby Rivlin, um, Rav Hillel Mishlov. Uh, yeah, he, in Kolator, you, you see his teachings on Mashiach ben Yosef, where he essentially describes Mashiach ben Yosef as the process of the material rebuild, rebuilding of Israel, what we can call Zionism, right? The, um, you know, the, the building of the state, the army, the economy, etc. And Mashiach ben David, or Mashiach ben Yehuda, the, the more Yehuda-oriented uh, messianic force, is less about building the vessel but, and more about filling it with content. And I think we're in an interesting stage of our people's development where the physical building has been largely successful. I mean, Zionism succeeded. Uh, Zionism, I would say, is the movement of Mashiach ben Yosef. 
it succeeded. Uh, I, I would identify 1967 as really okay. the point where Zionism finished. We have to and wrap it up. We, you can, we, if you could stay with us, we want to finish this thought. Just stay with us sure. right after the, the, the commercial. We'll be right back with you. Sure, sure. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. This is Shai Bentico, and each week I'll be webcasting to you from Judea, origin of the word Jew, a people besieged and beleaguered in every generation. Nazi Germany's but a memory, but in its place the world invented the phantom Palestinians as this generation's internationally authorized Jew killers. Tune in for a different slant on life in Israel. Phantom Nation, every Monday. Hi, I'm Rabbi David Aaron. The soul basics are the most profound, the most essential, and yet often the most neglected in our education. Join me for Soul Talk on Israel's News Talk Radio and discover the secrets to love, spiritual growth, and personal power. So for those people that have are just tuning in now, I would go back and listen to the recorded show because you're, you're missed most of it. But uh, we're in the process of talking about Joseph and his brothers and how that applies today with uh, Rav Yehuda Cohen. And uh, if you don't mind picking up just where you left off. Uh, yeah, no, I, I was saying that I think Zionism should be related to as the movement of Mashiach ben Yosef. Uh, I think that's how Rav Cook understands it in his eulogy of uh, Herzl, of Theodore Herzl, or Benjamin F. Herzl, depending on how you want to call him. And uh, and Money too expands on it in, in the safer that he has on Rav Cook's eulogy. And I think this movement of Mashiach ben Yosef is really about rebuilding the nation, the, the material nation, you know, our economy, our army, you know, our, our government, our institutions, but ultimately after that, um, we need to fill those institutions with content. We need to decide what are the values, what is the identity of the society, and that's, that, that's what comes after Michel Ben Yosef. So I think that, uh, for me, I, I tend to look at Zionism as not a synonym for Jewish liberation, but a very unique, specific stage of Jewish liberation that lasted from the 1880s to 1967. And I think since 1967, for the last half century, the Jewish people have been in need of a new Jewish liberation movement that can, uh, that, that can protect Zionism's positive achievements while cleaning up its mess and addressing its flaws. Because there is a mess, there are flaws. And, um, and and that makes sense, because this was a, an incredible endeavor, bringing a broken and scattered people back to the land we were displaced from, and, and all of that. So it, it doesn't surprise, it shouldn't surprise anybody that a mess was made. But uh, now that we have power, and now that we're in a position of, of um, stability, um, you know, certainly in comparison to what we had experienced for 2,000 years, I think that it's time to really come from a place of power, be comfortable with power, and uh, and really try to address all of these things. And and I think that 
Um, and, and to a lot of the work we do at the Vision Movement is really to try and empower young Jewish leaders uh, with the tools to, to become thought leaders and to really identify and achieve the next goals of Jewish liberation. What are the next objectives of Jewish history? Because, you know, when we say the Amidah, um, the Shemona Esrei, um, we can see that some of the bakashot, some of the things we're uh, mentioning, asking for, uh, asking for in the in the Amidah, are things that the Zionist movement succeeded in in doing. But there are also things that haven't been fulfilled yet, and now we need to create the movement that's going to fulfill those goals. I, I'm a big believer that the Amidah was created by our sages as a tool uh, for us to use to remind our conscious selves what our collective soul wants, to, to keep us connected to the will of our collective soul so that we would work towards achieving those goals in history as we move forward. Well, that's exactly what the rabbis say in, in the Gemara and Megillah when they discuss the uh, Amidah. For those who don't know, it's the standing silent prayer that we say three times a day with 18, which have now become 19 uh, blessings. And the Talmud in Megillah says specifically that it was ordered, it was put, it was arranged in the order of the redemption of the Jewish people. And mm-hmm. so that's exactly what you're saying, that, you know, we, yeah. have, to, we have to get to the next stage. Maybe, maybe we've gotten to Vili Yerushalayim Ircha, you know, that God has sort of returned somewhat to, to Jerusalem. We do have... Uh, a lot of Jerusalem, and we're waiting for the next stage, which is et tzemach David Avdechameh which is that we want the divinic dynasty, like you said. Like up till now, maybe it was all the the Messiah descendant from Joseph. That was his task, and now we're waiting for the next blessing, which is the uh, the messianic uh, d- uh, um, divinic the divinic dynasty. the Davidic Messiah to finish up the job, and that's really what we're, what we're looking forward to. So, so that's an interesting question, where we are in the map of the Amidah, uh, historically. I, I tend to feel that we're still right at the beginning of the additional, the 19th um, Bakasha request added by uh, Rabbi Shmuel Katan, meaning I think we're still at a point where we want the the plans of our enemies to be thwarted, those who are trying to obstruct the process of redemption. You know, we still are living in a world where even though we've come back to our land and we've established an independent state and we've, you know, taken control of the, you know, the, the, the cradle of Jewish civilization, you know, the, what we call the West Bank or Samaria and Judea, we're still living in a situation where the international community led by the United States is really obsessed with forcing us to give up these territories. So I think, and, and also to kind of, and, and also this like, I, what I would call westernization, meaning this, this attempt to kind of make sure Israel remains not its own civilization with its own culture and worldview and contribution to the world, but really an outpost of Western civilization. I think so long as the state of Israel is seen as an outpost of Western civilization, an extension of American power in pre-67 borders, uh, the U.S. would be happy to, to arm and fund Israel. But as, uh, once Israel becomes something outside of that sphere, something that's separate with its own interests, with its own agenda, with its own vision for what the world should be, uh, I think that might be very scary to Western civilization, especially, you know, if we're going to cast Western civilization in the role of what our sages call the Fourth Empire. 
I, I'd like to take a step back because I, I think that uh, we've gone over the head of uh, many people uh, that okay. are listening. And um, I know that Jews that grow up uh, outside of the land of Israel, um, even here in the land of Israel, are not familiar with the terms that we're speaking. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always use the, uh, I've coined the term MMM, which stands for the Magical Mashiach Moment. Uh, inevitably, if you grew up in an Orthodox home in America, you were taught this idea that uh, Mashiach is going to appear out of the blue and the Beit HaMikdash is going to fall out of the sky and everybody's going to be magically transported on the wings of eagles to Israel. And this is, I think this is the prevalent mainstream view that uh, mm-hmm. most people in, in outside of Israel believe that that. This is not a process. This is not Mashiach. This is this is something we're just waiting for, sitting back and waiting for to happen. Uh, can you address that that idea that we're not sort of like the Rambam says that that that, that this is going to be a natural process? This is not something right. that is something magical. Yeah, the, the Rambam is very clear in Hilchot Menachim that what we call the Mashiach is really just a leader that emerges from the people, a, a hero that rises up and accomplishes four very specific goals. Uh, And the Rambam says we don't need to know who he is in advance, but if somebody is working towards those objectives, we should support him, we should be on his team. In fact, the Haftorah, this past Shabbat, the Chazon Avadia, um, refers not to the Mashiach, but to Mashiim, like in the plural. And uh, I'm a Kohen, I'm not the Mashiach, I'm not from the house of David, I'm not a descendant of King David, but I should live my life as if I am the Mashiach, and so should you, so should all of us. And whoever ends up, you know, having the most talent and dedication and self-sacrifice on behalf of Israel's historic mission will ultimately be that leader. And if something happens to him, somebody else will be the leader. But really, we're all supposed to be working towards those objectives and collectively. Um, I think this idea that you mentioned of the Mashiach being some kind of magical creature like a leprechaun or Santa Claus is really the result of two things. Number one, us, especially Ashkenazi Jews, because that's more an issue, that, that that perception of the Mashiach is much more of an Ashkenazi problem. And I think that comes from living in a Christian society and being influenced by Christian ideas um, for so many centuries. But also as a result of the learned helplessness uh, that we experienced living in exile and feeling that things were so... The, the idea of how redemption would come... Uh, it, it just seemed so impossible, according to the, nas- the natural state of the world, that we just kind of accepted that it would have to be miraculous. That it would have to be what uh, what, what we call achishena and not bieta. Um, but what we've seen in the last century, century and a half, is that it indeed is coming bieta. And I would even argue that bieta is preferable to achishena. Uh, because it's uh, ultimately a greater sanctification of God's name. It's ultimately a greater Kiddush Hashem when you reveal that even what we have maybe mischaracterized, you know, misidentified as quote-unquote secular or separate from holiness, is in fact all part of the divine plan unfolding. So just to clarify, because again, many many people that are listening may not be familiar with these terms, hmm. uh, the... The, the Navi speaks about two different uh, different ways that uh, the Messianic era can appear, and, right. and one of them is through Achishana. It's a, it's a it's it's uh, it's something that uh, we are going to um, initiate because we are worthy of it. And the other one is Biita that there's a specific time that is designated for it to happen, and regardless of our worthiness, it will come regardless. 
Is that correct? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. I, I just want to. I just want to. Uh, you know, jump in for a second. Uh, something in in the book that I just translated, Ayel uh, Tashachar by Rav Filber, he says something so beautifully. He says, you know, you said it. You you uh, presented it as if there's the, the prophet talks about these two things, but in reality, the verse doesn't seem to say that. The verse says, "Beita Achishana." In its time, I will hasten it. Now the Gemara says there's a, there's a contradiction there, but but the Gra understands it as even in the biita, even in the the slow process, there is a way to to to, to hasten it, to make it come quicker and to make it come easier, mm-hmm. and that's really I guess what we we just spoke about, and we have to right. close up. So we're just gonna we're gonna end um, that that it's up to us in this process of Bi'ita, in its time, to make things come quicker and easier and bring the Mashiach. And thank you so much, Rav Yehuda HaKohen, for joining us. Uh, it was Thanks extremely uh, interesting. We really, really appreciate it. All right. Thanks again. And if anybody's interested in continuing the conversation, they can check out our work at visionmag.org. That's our online magazine. Our podcasts are there. Our Torah is there. And our political analysis is there. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. Just click the orange button at the top of the IsraelNewsTalkRadio.home page, log in as yourself or an anonymous guest, and join in on the fun. You'll meet other listeners from all over the world who listen to Israel News Talk Radio, and you can make new friends. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. It's the closest you can get to being in the studio with us. We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips with scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candlelighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel. Plus, little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.